The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm Stephen Mayne, Eureka contributor, founder of Crikey, shareholder, activist and City of Manningham councillor. And we are? The Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. And we're in a very busy uh, Leclerc this morning. It's lots of students because we're near Swinburne. It's That's amazing. Right. Melbourne streets are just packed again. Like yeah. the roads are clogged. The students are flying in. The migrants are flying in. It seems like we're just back to pre-COVID massive congestion. Yeah, we are. Uh, let's get stuck into our topics. Yes. Uh, so, look, I just wanted to quickly raise um, uh, an open letter that was sent by more than a 1,000 tech researchers last night. Um, it's got a fair bit of coverage in the international papers this morning um, uh, about uh, artificial intelligence and chat GPT and the other chatbots that are going on, machine learning and they're saying that there should be a six-month pause in AI research. And Jeez, uh, and who's got the authority to order that? Well, they're just calling for it, right? These are, these are tech researchers. And, I mean, the interesting thing is that these are kind of the winners from AI research. These are people not who lose from it, who lose their jobs, but who potentially are winners. People like Elon Musk and, uh, and other technology leaders as well as researchers – and the open letter in part says this. We must, ask, we must ask ourselves, should we let the machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? Should we automate away all the, all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? Should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete and replace us? And should we lo- risk the loss of control of our civilization? So, uh, what do you reckon, Stephen? A bit of of high dungeon there. Alan, I I think you'd have more chance of calling for a six-month pause in global warming. I mean, how do you stop the tidal wave of the internet and AI and machine learning? Just global, what, a big red stop sign to the whole world? I mean, I think it's interesting that the the letter does not uh, call for government intervention. It calls for a voluntary six-month So pause. I guess it's calling for big tech. It's calling for the Googles and the Microsofts to slow down, stop rushing to market, and actually just get this right. Think about what you're doing. Yeah, because it is a massive gold rush sort of going on, That's and it. it is a pretty untidy um, scramble. Well, it's not just that. I mean, it is, it is those things, but it's also a big deal. This is a big deal for humanity. I've written this a few times. I think it is, and... I mean, I think it is a big deal for civilization, but the problem is that um, the only people who can really control it are governments through legislation. I mean, it, it's yeah, it seems and to, effectively, it seems to me it's it's just part of the internet. At the end of the day, it's all internet enabled, and it's very difficult to stop the internet delivering totally. something. Uh, I mean, it's hard to stop porn. It's hard to stop gambling. You know, like it's hard to stop misinformation. So it's going to be incredibly hard to stop AI. Uh, exactly, I agree. Um, but they got your attention anyway. These thousands. They got my attention. Do-gooders, yes. Yeah, so, oh, well, I um, think it's worth highlighting that. Let's yeah. move on to the banking crisis. 
uh, which um, is slowing down. You'd have to say. I mean, you know, the, there's no. We haven't had a. We haven't had a bank run for a week or two, have we? Well, you just never know. I mean, like uh, Silicon Valley Bank was the fastest collapse since bearings in 1995. I mean, it took three days. And they didn't even have a rogue trader on the run like Nick Leeson. It was just a bank. So when we catch up together in six days' time, Alan, I think there could be another one that's gone. Well, everything, um, everything happens more quickly these days, doesn't it? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Except the traffic driving to Leclerc. But, um, look, I'm, I'm interested in this. I think there's an interesting line about uh, the Swiss, the credibility of the Swiss state. And I read a good piece out of the, uh, I think it was Daily Telegraph in the UK, that they're shot. They're absolutely shot because they've shafted, they've stolen $17 billion of hybrids off the junior lenders to Credit Suisse. And they've now created a giant bank with 1.7 in, in UBS with 1.7 trillion dollars in liabilities, which is double the size of the Swiss state. And there's a run on Switzerland at the moment. People are pulling their money out because you can't trust them because they're thieves. And is the state big enough to stand behind UBS? Well, perhaps the question is: Is the UBS uh, big enough to stand behind the Swiss state? Because, well, well, as correct. you point out, they're bigger than the Swiss state. Well, that's right. I think and UBS, maybe if there's a run on the Switzerland, then UBS has to stand behind. Look, I them. think UBS should re-domicile to New York. I mean, you can't put up with what the Swiss have done. If the Swiss are not going to sack any politicians for this, then they're done. I mean, the Poms for all their. Why would UBS? Uh, re-domiciled in New York when they absolutely run now, Switzerland. I mean, now, they they're, they're now domiciled in a in a state of thieves who no, but, but they steal now run, international money. But they now run the state. It's it's their it's their country. UBS's country. I mean, they might as well stay there and run the place because it is the equivalent of the big four banks in Macquarie all merging. I mean, in terms of the size of UBS, yeah, in, yeah, in the context exactly. of the economy. But but just compare it right. So with the Poms, when they had their market crisis with crazy, you know, unfunded tax cuts and this sort of stuff, the, the Bank of England leapt in and guaranteed the markets and all the politicians who did it were instantly decapitated. So Liz Truss and her <laughs> Chancellor sacked instantly. Not a single Swiss politician has been sacked yet and they've stolen $17 billion off Credit Suisse junior bondholders. They've totally put a crisis through the $270 billion US junior bank market and even bank hybrids in Australia, people are starting to say, can you trust a hybrid here? Well, but but that is wise to some extent. I mean, in the sense that hybrids are, to some extent, risk assets. They're not they're not bonds. They're not But they've thrown the guaranteed. hierarchy of credit and equity out the window because why are the equity holders getting anything when the hybrid debt holders are getting zero? No, that's fair enough, exactly. And that's what they've that's done. Right. That, for Switzerland to come out and to upend the hierarchy of credit... And steal $17 billion whilst giving $8 billion of value or whatever it is to the shareholders in, in well, unfortunately, in this Swiss. case, It's unbelievable. The, unfortunately, in this case, a, a lot of the equity was owned by Saudi Arabia, which... And that's uh, why they've, they've done a capital strike. The Qataris and the Saudis have said, we're pulling all our money out of Switzerland unless you look after the shareholders. And so then they decided to steal the money off the, off the bondholders to keep the Saudis and the Qataris happy. And now the $17 billion of bondholders are threatening to pull all their money out. And there's basically been a run on the Swiss state. Who's going to buy Swiss francs in this environment? Not me. No, I'm not going to Switzerland. So uh, I just wanted to ask you about the New South Wales election. Does this mean the end of Pokey's reform? Because uh, the Liberals had a proposal which was to have cashless gambling 
where you could where you had to nominate how much you were prepared to lose, and the, the Labor Party did not, right? And the Labor Party's now won handsomely. Yes. Is that it for? Just watch that bee buzzing around your ear there, Alan. You almost got bitten. Um, on Pokey's reform, look, I always look to the share market for the truth. So when Woodside and the gas companies fell a bit after the green labour deal on the uh, the emissions, you know that there is some serious grunt in the policy. And when the share price of Endeavour Group and Aristocrat goes up in the days leading into the New South Wales election, you know that the Perite plan was a material move that would have had a significant impact and Labor totally pokies captured, promising to do sod all. Um, it is not good for us reformers, but it is going to be a minority parliament. They're probably only going to get 45 out of 40. They need 47, they only get a 45. The entire crossbench is up for gambling reform. The industry's reputation is mud. And I don't think that Labor will be able to maintain a situation of we've got the highest losses in the world. Sydney is the most pokies dominated city in the world. And we're going to do nothing, even though we're the party of social justice, because there's been so much media and discussion about it. The community is up for it. Something will happen, but it won't be as dramatic as what Perrottet is promising. Um, have the share prices of Aristocrat and Endeavour gone up they since have the gone election? Up, yes. Yeah. Well, in the lead up too, because they follow the bookies, and the bookies oh, are saying yeah. Labor majority, you know, and then up they go. And then after the, after it was confirmed that there was no Perrottet government, they firmed again um, after the election. But because there's no no Labor majority now, there is still a bit of risk, and there's also quite a bit of gambling risk in the federal parliament with a potential ban on ads. There's motions about eliminating credit card transactions for online. So. The regulatory pushback, it, we're, we're miles away from tobacco, but it has more momentum than I've seen in a I, long time. I have time. noticed that the ads, the the, um, the warnings after gambling ads have got a bit sharper. Um, you know, the, now now you see them after the gambling ad, it says yeah. you win some, but you lose more. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, that, that came into effect nationally at the end of March. Uh, there's a consumer protection framework that all the states agreed to. And it's funny, if you go back to the history of that, when... Gillard gave up on Pokey's reform in 2011. One of the sop, one of the sort of the sops to the reformers was, we'll have an inquiry into online gambling. You know, there's the Pokey's industry saying, nothing to see here, have a look at the internet. And change of government, Scott Morrison comes in, he's the minister, there's this inquiry, and Scott Morrison actually didn't like gambling and wanted to do stuff. And then Alan Tudge later became the minister and he wanted to do stuff as well. So they, they, they rounded all the states up and one of the reforms they got, apart from like monthly statements, you have to give a sports bet has to give you a, a statement, like a bank statement. So you can't just lose 100000 and not be told about it. And, um, and the change of the gamble responsibly has also gone as part of that national framework, which is good. So reform is, is inching away, but we're still losing $25 billion a year, which is a tragedy. Uh, now, what about Origin Energy, Alan? It's... Going, going, gone. Another famous, magnificent Australian company to be taken over by foreign interests. I don't know about magnificent, Stephen. I well, mean, it's all right. I've, I've pulled one out of the bottom drawer, Alan. I love the Stock Exchange announcements platform because every single announcement made since 1998 is up there. And I've just pulled one out, bearing in mind that Origin have just agreed to sell themselves for $8.90 a share. And they're saying, haven't we done a fantastic job to negotiate $8.90 a share? 
So on the 30th of May 2008, uh, they say that they don't believe the $15.50 cash offer from British Gas represented fair value and they were therefore rejecting it. So thanks very much, Origin. You could have had $15.50 15 years ago and now we're getting 140,000 shareholders are getting $8.90 possibly if the agency and the FIRB approve of it. Well, I imagine the company would much prefer nobody dug that stuff up, Stephen. Yes. yes. I mean, that is better left, better left, you know, under the rug. It's a bit like when Perpetual voted down the $6 a share privatisation offer for APN News and Media, and then they went to 40 cents or something after. The, but that was, at a, that was a board-approved deal that Perpetual voted down. This one was the board rejecting British gas paying $15.50 a share. So. Well, there you are. Now, look, I just wanted to mention another takeover, which was Liontown Resources, which uh, is a, a lithium prospector and uh, that's being taken over by Albemarle, which is the second biggest lithium producer in the world uh, uh, against China, so the biggest uh, producer in the West. And Liontown uh, has rejected their offer. Um, but uh, the interesting thing is that they were the second or third most shorted stock on the ASX. Um, so 10, 10% of its capital was short, short sold. And uh, uh, the share price went up 67% the other day when the bid was announced. So those short sellers are absolutely getting smashed. And you need to actually put a number to that, Alan, because the, the Albemarle offer at $2.50 values, the company at $5.5 billion. So 10% short, that's $550 million worth of borrowed stock. Uh, so someone's lost probably a couple the, hundred million there. Well, the thing is that w- with short selling, you don't just lose the $500 million you've invested in it. You, you, the, the, losses it the losses are unlimited. The losses Infinity. are unlimited. Infinity. How much can you lose short selling? Infinity. Infinity. <laughs> so um, At least buying ordinary stock, you can only go to zero. Exactly. <laughs> so never get involved in shorting. Because uh, you uh, never know what's going to happen. Correct, correct. I mean, they all. Everyone thought, oh well, lithium, lithium price has gone up a lot. It's going to come down now. Well, maybe, maybe not. But well, the price had come down fifty percent since November twenty-two. But at the end of the day, it's a super cycle for lithium, and um, it's it's going to be longer for stronger. So exactly. stronger for longer. So uh, I would never be shorting a lithium stock in any situation. Uh, unless it was a spec. I mean, there's a lot of speculative wannabe lithium players. You can short them. But anyone who's actually producing lithium, yeah. like um, Tim Goiter's outfit, and he's a new billionaire on, on lithium, where you shouldn't be shorting it. Questions? Questions. Mr. Anon. <laughs> Mr. Anon says, while the government scrambles to raise taxes due to budget pressure, should it also be looking at reducing big spending items like the NDIS? The premise of NDIS is commendable, but it seems excessive at $36 billion for 530,000 people, 68000 per person on average. Uh, well, <laughs> yes, I guess. They are, in fact, looking at reducing the NDIS expenditure, but it's a, uh, you know, a box of snakes. It's a great social policy, are. but it's been widely rorted. There's far too much bureaucracy. And in fact, even just driving over here today, I had uh, news radio on and I heard Libby Coker, the Labor member for Corangamite, slamming the NDIA for excessive bureaucracy and just give people what they need and stop making them fill in 25 forms. So I think like any massive government program, the bureaucrats just don't know how to 
design it with simplicity. And then when you put too big a pile of money out in front of people, it gets rorted as well. And I think you've got a combination of too much bureaucracy and a lot of rorting, and therefore we're spending too much money on it. I must say, this might be an unpopular and possibly even uh, ridiculous point of view, Stephen, but I must say that it's something like the NDIs. The more bureaucracy, the better. The harder it is to get money out of them, possibly the better. I mean, you don't want to make it too simple. Crikey. Well, not too simple, but just, just uh, not... I mean, just, I mean, Come I'm, on. A, I'm a local government councillor. I see the bureaucracy. You know, it's it's just instinctive for bureaucrats to yeah. make things complicated. Excellent. The, oh. the, the harder, the better. Just I get on say. with it. We're always consulting about stuff. Just do something. Anyway, um, look, I, I agree. You know, the broad point is fiscal reform, and I agree that we should be having a much better debate. I just want to say, well done, Allegra Spender, for getting up this tax summit that she's organised for tomorrow with Ken Henry speaking. And her language is great. She says, both sides have wedged each other so much on tax that the debate is pathetic and we've got these tiny tinkering at the edges and not having a meaningful tax debate. So I'm loving the work of these teals, you know, whether it's gambling reform or tax reform. or they're just, they're just lifting the parliament. And well done, Allegra Spender, for getting a tax debate going. I mean, look, I don't want to... You know, yeah, good honour, I say, but, but I don't think a few speeches tomorrow is going to make much difference to No, but at least the, the, the debate should be had. And she's right. She, each side has wedged the other so much that they cannot move and do anything. That's true. And it's pathetic. John, love listening to the show. Just want you to get your opinion on the new FBT exemption for leasing electric vehicles. And what kind of future incentives would you like to see, if any? Well... I love the fact that Labor's introduced uh, no means test, complete exemption for of FBT for leasing for the corporate fleet sort of situation. I think that's a an excellent tax-driven incentive and support for a good, clean industry. Well done. I In Manningham, we don't have any. As a councillor, I'm embarrassed that we still haven't funded our first council-funded public access uh, EV charging station. And the mayor did have one, an EV, and then changed it over because it was too risky of running out without any charging. So we've well, just shame got on, a Shame on Manningham. Well, I agree. I, to my colleagues, get on with it. Um, budget's coming up. Let's just fund the damn thing. Um Yeah, so we need a rollout of public charging. That's the next big thing that needs to be subsidised to support the EV market. Yes. Bertie says, Hi, I'm a regular listener. Enjoy the show. I'd like to consider buying gender bonds under the orange bonds principles. I understand that women's livelihood bonds five are now available and I wanted to know how I could buy this bond as an individual investor. Uh, I, I know absolutely nothing about I've had this, a look at this one. I've done my homework, Alan. So, look, ANZ is one of the three banks promoting this, along with Barclays and Standard Chartered. It's been put up by um, a Singapore-based mob called the Impact Investment Exchange, and they are claiming to support up to 300,000 women in Asia and Africa by investing in and lending to women-led businesses. And how they make the economics of this work is that the US and the Swedes have underwritten 50% of the losses. So if giving a grant, so basically it's a government subsidised bond program and they're happy to lose money. So a bond becomes a grant only giving it to women-led businesses. 
and um, and anyone around the world can can invest in these and be pretty comfortable you're going to get your money back because you've got some some government backstop on losses. What's the yield on them? Well, I mean, I, I didn't read all of the 332-page uh, prospectus, but I think it was around the six. And, um, and you know, did you see happen to notice what the minimum investment is? No, I didn't see the, the retail access to it. Like, it's the fifth one of these programs, and they've only lent 120 million US in total. So it's not exactly reached scale to have five bond issues of US 120 million. But each, each one is rising. This latest one was 45 million. Um, and, but obviously, you've got to have a government guarantee, effectively, to get it going. So, um, yeah. Yeah, but as, long as, but as long as the minimum investment's not $100,000. Yeah, well, I... I um, so, I, you know, I mean, I, anyway, I, I, yeah. but presumably you can Google orange bonds or women's livelihood bonds five, is that right? Yes, and, that's and the one. you can find out about them if you, uh, if you would like. Ali says, I was at an ASX presentation last year and heard that equal weighting outperforms market capitalisation weightings, which is what the ASX 200 ETF is. Why is this the case and why would the ASX let this be said at their presentation? <laughs> I saw Van Eck has an ETF with the code MVW that does this and the performance reflects what I heard. Am I missing something? Why wouldn't everyone do this if this is the case? Well, I think it's just a case of the scoreboard, Alan, is that Van Eck's got eight listed ETFs and uh, this one's been going since 2014. Its market value is $1.78 billion, and it's performed very well. And its current allocation is it's got a 1.3% allocation to, to 85 stocks. So this presumably means that when anything outperforms, they sell. And when anything is a dog, they buy. Because that's the only way you can keep 1.3% in 85 stocks. But the point is, if you buy a market capitalisation weighted ETF, what you're doing is you're, you're investing in banks and miners. And CSL. To the extent, and CSL yeah. to the yeah. extent of about 40 yeah. or 50% so of your So what this mob portfolio. is actually doing is they're actually going against the index herd. Yeah, so, so you end up... So you, I reckon that's why, that's why they're outperforming. They outperform because you invest in small companies yeah, well, or yeah, smaller but, but companies. But also when everyone else is... Is buying in to the stu- to the surger. Yeah, you're right. taking profits, yeah. and when everyone else is dumping the dog, you're buying more. So Which it's just is precisely it's, it's, the thing you should be doing. Yeah. So if the scoreboard says it outperforms, then um, look, it's only one of eight. You know, it's just it's the great thing about ETFs is you get diversity of offering. It's a good idea. Lachlan says, last week, Alan and, James, Alan and James spoke about Canada's foreign investment restrictions on housing and whether or not Australia needed something similar. James didn't seem to think so. The federal government has an ambition to build a million homes in five years to ease the housing affordability crisis. But in this economic climate, how realistic do you think this is? Could stock be freed up in other ways by restricting foreign purchases, limiting Airbnbs or creating conditions for investors to sell already built homes to renters? Well, I can, first thing I'm going to say, Alan, is that the I agree with the Greens and the crossbench that the current Labor scheme, in creating a fund and investing the earnings in the fund, it's just not enough. That all levels of government need to be building more affordable homes that are subsidised for key workers and the like, and no level of government is adequately investing in this space at the moment. That is the simple solution. Then you can possibly add grandfathering the end of negative gearing. Um, but also, also councils, councils like you should be rushing through the release of more 
land for housing. The and California also medium, style, the California style you'll lose your and privileges you to, if you don't fast track affordable housing permits, I support. And you need to be bulldozing all the NIMBYists. Yes, so people like your colleagues in Borondara who have uh, – you know how much NIMBYism is in, in Burundara and in, in the city city of Kuyong? What do you mean at, how much is it? Well, no, how much – how far it goes. So I was at the, 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 the season launch this week of the Yarra Junior Footy League, which is the biggest AFL junior league in the country with 10,000 members, 10,000 kids who play. And they're trialling a Friday night under eights thing in Manningham because we've, we've invested in all this new lighting. But there's very little lighting in Burundara on sporting ovals because the NIMBYs won't allow it. So when the sun sets at 5.15 on a cold winter's night in your local council, everyone's got to go home because they won't put lights up because the local neighbours are going, oh, too much noise and light. And yeah. NIMBYism has gone crazy in your council area, Alan. <laughs> anyway, that'll win me a few friends on the uh, Burundara council. Okay, now I just wanted to say on this subject, which I'm actually uh, doing a... Uh, recording a piece this afternoon for the ABC News on Sunday night on the rental crisis. Um, it is true that uh, there are a lot, there are in fact six times as many short term rentals on the market than there are long term rentals. Currently, there are 53,000 uh, 53, long term rentals available in Australia, the whole of the country, and there are 300,000 short term rentals available about three quarters of which are on Airbnb, not all of them, and Airbnb's listings have been declining a bit because there's been more competition coming in. It used to be a monopoly, now it's not. And also, a lot of people are getting sick of having their, their properties on Airbnb because they have, they're sick of cleaning up after the parties. Yeah. So, um, that is true that there are uh, there is a, um, a, a mismatch between short-term and long-term rentals, uh, but... And it's also true that, you know, no-one's doing enough building of new houses, yeah, whether it's correct. for investment purposes or affordable by government or whatever. But the problem is that we have a rental crisis now, right, this year. Yeah. The rental vacancy rate is 1%. Yeah, because we've opened and the floodgates so, to foreign students and foreign workers so the and we haven't got the housing to back that's it up. That's right. So we have this massive wave of immigrations, right? So the immigration at the moment is 1,000 a day. Yeah. There's 1,000 people coming in per day yeah. into Australia. So the – and they're all coming into the capital cities. Melbourne, Sydney and um, – Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane's um, available rentals is about 30,000. 1,000 a day means that they'll soak up the available rentals in yeah. a month, yeah. right? But the tr – so so the problem is that it's going to take – if, if all of the, the plans to build housing comes off, it takes three to five years to get them built, Right. So that doesn't solve the problem yeah. now. Yeah. And so and the problem is we have massive dire staff shortages around the country. We actually do need all these workers coming in yeah. a thousand a day. Yeah, correct. And we need so labourers too, because we at council, we are just seeing the cost of construction, you know. We were told that fixing up the outdoor pool in Doncaster was gonna be seven million, now it's thirteen million in, in a three year move. New library, 50 million. So it is ridiculous. And that's developers are copying that too because the cost of construction has gone through the roof. So in Doncaster Hill, we've got an investment drought. Our, our developer tax revenue is going to be half the budget this year because no one's building high-rise apartments anymore because the cost of construction is too much and the demand isn't there. Hopefully, all this new demand 
will cause a few developers to actually turn some sods and get building if they can find the labour. Yeah, but it's going to take years, right? So this is the yeah. problem. We've got but the market a crisis will respond. now. The developers will start building again because yeah, their demand is rising, rents are rising, so the economics of building is getting better. Stefan says, not money or investment related, but uh, when are you well-off chumps? Going to jump on the EV train and get yourself one. Alan, I've heard you make several bullish remarks regarding the direction which the automotive market is heading and that EVs are going to play a large part. Couple that with the recent FBT exemptions for EVs and I'm left wondering why you haven't got three on order already. Uh, <laughs> well, we're about to buy our fourth family car and it unfortunately will be a petrol gas. Why is that? Because we can't afford it. You're a EV. disgrace. Can't afford an EV. And I can't, it's too unreliable. There's no charging points. I'll, I'll, you know, I'm terrified about running out of power in the middle of, you and know, look, I, yeah, driving to Sydney or something. So I just can't justify changing cars. That's my problem. I mean, I've got, yeah, yeah. I've got a nice car. I mean, it's not that old. Yeah, I, you know, I can't change it yet. I, when I change it, I'll get an electric car for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm the same. When it's reliable, Luke. If there's a fifty, if there's a ninety percent estimated chance of a recession in the U.S. and markets go down in recessions, then why on earth is anyone in the market still? Are we all irrational? Good question. In <laughs> fact, the the estimated chance of a recession in the U.S. is one hundred percent. It's not ninety percent. It's one hundred percent. I mean, it might be these are these economists who who do that might be wrong. Yeah. But they all agree there's yeah. a recession. But coming. don't forget that a recession is just the economy going from a hundred to ninety nine. You know, well, like it's not. A depression. No, you know, no, but, but but it is true that whenever there's a recession, the market stock market goes down. Yes. The stock market always goes down in a recession. Yes. And right now the stock market is not predicting a recession. Yes, and and, it, and, and they're over-forecasting earnings on the upside, as but I had this, I had this on the news last night, as I'm sure you, uh, Your Honour, would be aware. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The, um, th- there was a, there's a massive disconnect, right? Uh, EPS forecasts on the market, earnings per share of forecasts on the market are all up, and the econ- so that's the analysts who yeah. are predicting, who predict um, company earnings bottom up, and the f- economists forecasting the economy bottom down are forecasting a recession, and the analysts are forecasting rising earnings. So someone's going to be wrong. Yeah, well the analysts are wrong. Earnings are going to fall, but there's also another truism is that. Don't time the market. The people who do best are the long-term investors. So there's a lot of people out there who are just riding the bumps. Don't have to sell. Don't have to trigger big capital gains tax bills. Don't want to go 70% into cash. So if you're not going to be in the share market, where do you go? Anyway. So we've got time for a couple more, I think. Is that right? Jared, you can One or two more. Come on. You go. You go. Jared says, I can't help but comment on the remarks on last week's podcast by Stephen about the poor old shareholders of Silicon Valley Bank and the fact that they didn't do anything wrong and shouldn't be punished for the collapse. May I point out that it's the poor old shareholders who appoint the CEO, the same CEO who oversaw this complete mess and the absurd lack of interest rate risk management. Maybe these shareholders should have invested some time in analysing the financials and especially their asset liability timing mismatch. Well, Jared... Firstly, the, the shareholders don't appoint the CEO. The board appoints the CEO and the shareholders appoint the board. And look, but I think Jared, just before you go on, I think Jared does have a higher opinion of shareholder democracy uh, than is warranted perhaps. Yes. Well, I mean, I think that Greg Becker, the long-term CEO, I mean, how do you stop 
42 billion being withdrawn in 24 hours and then the government coming in and stealing your bank. I mean, it's just No, but he invested Mr. Becker invested far too much of his of his money into government oh, oh, bonds. Oh, government bonds. Oh, what a risk taker. He bought US government bonds. I mean, what next? An Icelandic uh, crypto fund? I no, mean, but he's but they're on. tradable securities, right? They go up and down in value. It's not as if no, 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 come on, Stephen. Yeah, but my point they're was... Not, he's not the holding them to maturity. The federal government, the federal US government stood behind all the bond holdings of all the other banks after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and offered them to go to the, their window and exchange it for 100 cents in the dollar, but they pulled the rug on Silicon Valley Bank before offering them the same government guarantee on their bond investments. So they're total hypocrites. The government should have just lent them some money to deal with the deposits and let them trade on. Anyway. Anyway. Last one. Uh, which one are we going to go with? Oh, the GST one was quite interesting. Um, I see that the GST, the call for GST reform is back for another look. Seems to be a good case for removing all exemptions instead of increasing the GST rate. What do you reckon, Alan? I mean, I agree that the GST is a joke. It's only producing 3.4% of our GDP in revenue compared to 6.8% in the OECD. And they should get rid of most of the exemptions, except for possibly going to the doctor. Well, the GST was introduced in, uh, whenever it was, 2000, uh, because the top marginal income tax rate was cut from 66% to below 50% by the Labor government, right? And therefore, and government expenditure kept rising, uh, and so they had to come up with some other tax. So they came up with the GST. I mean, this is not just Australia. This is the world. Yeah. World yeah. world income tax rates in the 60s, 70s and, uh, and the 70s and 80s were cut. Um, and the yeah. top marginal tax rates were cut yeah. from about two-thirds to less than but a half. But ours is still one and of so the highest in the world. And our GST is one of the lowest in the world. And that dial needs to be the moved. The GST is a highly regressive tax. So we, what's happened is we've gone from progressive taxes where the rates are high, the, uh, the percentage rates are higher for rich people uh, and we've, we've imposing GSTs which are uh, uh, equal and hit poor people the hardest. Yeah. And I just think, Stephen, you should be ashamed of yourself <laughs> supporting a GST uh, that hits poor people the hardest. If the Kiwis I mean, what are, are 15 you thinking, why aren't we? We have one of the lowest GSTs in the world, the leakiest GST we in should the world leave, with too we many should, exemptions. Uh, in my opinion, we should be leaving the GST where it is and, and increasing it. the top marginal tax rate oh, and increasing income Alan. taxes. Uh, which I'm, I'm with my favourite teal, Allegra Spender. There is too much reliance on workers, particularly younger workers, for the tax system who are earning 100 grand a year with three kids paying too yeah, but, much tax, but who do you school reckon, fees, but, the whole box Steve, of dice. But, but who's paying the GST? They are. But why, should, of a they why are. should a tourist who comes here and spends $1,000 buying up the best avocados in the supermarket not pay a dollar of tax on that fresh avocado? That is a total joke. Oh, hit them with a departure tax then. I don't know. Yeah, but just, you know. just, just tax everyone 10%. It's modest. 10% is a low tax. It's not going to be material on prices. And give a bit back through the welfare system. That's how you deal with the regressiveness of it. Anyway, Alan... Anyway, I think we're done. We've been shouting at each other for a good half an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with Stephen May because James Thompson... He's gone to Japan, hasn't he? He's he's gone to Japan with his children. Oh, he's taking his his kids. The whole family's off to Japan. Um, 
and so it'll be an interesting holiday for them. And Teenagers, I think, they're, I think they're 14 and 12. I think it's a very interesting and good time to be taking kids to countries like Japan. Actually, we did that. We took our three kids just, just before school fees started. We said, let's go and spend a year's worth of school fees on our last ever overseas holiday. Italy, the UK. It was fantastic. Haven't been out of four one ever since, though. I'm Alan Cole, a founder of Eureka Report and the, the other things. I'm Stephen Main. Looking forward to seeing you all next week.